Our Father, as we think about the revelation that you've given to us in these 11 or 9 to 11 chapters of Genesis, we ask that your Holy Spirit again guide us into fortifying ourselves, taking in your word, that we may be strong and be able to stand in a day which basically is wholly oriented uh, in the direction of denying these truths, of covering them up, of suppressing them, and of reinterpreting them. And we understand, Father, the conflict that we're in. We understand the conflict is bigger than our strength. So we ask that you would guide us and give us the assurance of the content of the truthfulness of our beliefs and give us the strength then to bear witness to them. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're going to uh, do the first of four appendices. And um, I would ask that if you are getting these appendices, uh, we're going to need some... The, the kitty for copying is getting very low. So if you um, could donate, I think, a, a do $2 should cover all four appendices uh, very well. So if you want to give a contribution, appreciate it. My wife will take it, or you can put it in our little uh, one another box over there. Um, before I get into Appendix A, however, I want to pause to see if anyone has questions on what we have done, areas that we have worked with so far, because if you do and you articulate them, then I can, as we go through these appendices, I'll address those areas. So, because the appendices are where we're going to kind of pause, stop the progress through the text, and go back now and start looking at the whole. So if you have any questions on any area, just anybody want to, so we can, on the spin around here, we can cover these areas. Well, either I've totally confused you, or it's been very clear. <laughs> um, tonight, then what I will do, and interrupt me if you have questions, if you happen to think of a question, raise your hand, that's, that's fine. And I'll, I'll recognize you and we can get, get on with it. Um, tonight, the appendix that I've done here really is to deal with a question of the interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11. This isn't a question for non-Christians. So the appendix tonight, unlike the ones to follow, the one that you've got handed today is on natural history in a biological sense, then we're going to do natural history in a physics sense, then natural history in a geological sense. And those obviously are going to be in conflict with, with non-Christian culture. But um, tonight, the issue of interpreting Genesis is largely one that occurs inside the church. And we said, when we were going through the first event, remember, creation, we said that uh, back in chapter 1, I believe, that uh, there's, a, there's a great movement in the last 300 years in church history to forsake the traditional interpretation of Genesis, even to the point of arguing that there never was a traditional interpretation of Genesis. And interestingly and kind of paradoxically, most of this occurs in Christian schools. Um, one of the great mysteries or odd things to notice about the modern creationist evolutionist controversy is that the loudest proponents of creationism are Christians who have technical backgrounds who have nothing to do with a Christian campus. The people who are the most adapting and compromising and accommodating are generally people from Christian campuses. This isn't always true. I mean, I, you can't paint this in black and white like that, but, but that tends to be the case. It tends to be the case that Christian schools uh, 
try to be gentlemanly to the point of being so accommodating to the non-Christians, fearing they will drive the non-Christian away from the gospel, that they want to kind of speak out of both sides of their mouth here on Genesis. So I want to address that issue before I go any further. That that is just an observation. Not saying that every Christian campus does this. It's simply saying, however, that many Christians have gone to Christian colleges and wound up with an allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And it's funny because on the secular campus, where I think the conflict is much clearer, uh, where you have clearly uh, a Christian, non-Christian conflict, there you tend to see, not always, but you tend to see a more fundamentalist view of the Scripture. So it's just been my observation uh, over the past 40 years or so that uh, that seems to work pretty well as a, as a description. So <coughs> Appendix A deals with one of the three strategies <coughs> that you can use. Remember we said back in Chapter 1 that there are three approaches that have been used to try to reconcile the Bible science and the origin story. One of those strategies is, we call it the capitulation strategy, and in the capitulation strategy, the Bible is totally abandoned, officially, completely, and explicitly, very clear. Representatives of that strategy would be your liberal churchmen, the modernists, who in the 20th century have basically taken over every major denomination. Um, one of the things that we as Christians need to learn is our own history. It would really help most of us if we would know what has happened in the 20th century. The way we've been taught, because most of us have gone from secular schools and have had a secular history course, the two big events in, in the 20th century, the First World War and the Second World War, and maybe the Depression thrown in. But that's not true. One of the biggest events in this country happened, and it's never mentioned in the history course of the 20th century. And that is, between 1900 and 1925, every major denomination went liberal. Every single one of them. And schools were lost, libraries were lost, pulpits were lost. One of the most famous sermons in America was preached at Riverside Church in New York City, a sermon so famous that it was paraded across the, the newspapers of America. I think it was in 1925 or 1923. And it was at a congregational church, Riverside Church, well-known New York City, and the pastor either was sick or he was out of town that Sunday morning. So the, the deacons or the elders invited a guest speaker. And the speaker they invited was a man by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. Well, Harry Emerson Fosdick, if you rummage through your parents' library, people who lived in the 20s, and you sort of dig around in their book and their see what kind of books they were reading, you will find, probably, a book written by Harry Emerson Fosdick, very prolific writer. One of his famous books was The Manhood of the Master, clearly affirming the humanity of Jesus to his denial of his deity. And Harry Emerson Fosdick popularized liberalism. Well, anyway, that Sunday morning, he was invited to be the guest speaker, and the title of his sermon was, was Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And it was the beginning of the great put-down in America of fundamentalism. And what, why Harry Emerson Fosdick preached that sermon that Sunday morning was because the fundamentalists and some of the denominations were questioning supporting pastors and missionaries who were denying overtly and clearly the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, the resurrection physically, and so forth. And Fosdick resented, and the liberals always have resented this, to hold a church organization to a creedal standard. 
especially when it comes to money. Because the most sensitive portion of the human anatomy is the wallet. And this always works. So it was that in the early 20s, uh, the, the prosperity after World War I was all over the country, and so you had this, this building economy in the, you know, the Roaring Twenties. But what people forget is that the Roaring Twenties were really roaring in the area of theology. And we only in our day, in the 80s and 90s, have the, has the evangelical world attained a little bit of the maturity it had at the turn of the century. We have gone through a dearth from 25 on up through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and we forget Billy Graham was just honored this week in Congress, the highest uh, award that can be given a citizen of this country. Only 100 people in our nation's history have had it. Of course, the Washington Post has it on page 108 in fine print. But the point is that here's a guy who, with four or five other men, literally rebuilt evangelical Christianity after World War II. Most of us wouldn't even be here tonight had not four or five men, Donald Gray Barnhouse in Philadelphia, Billy Graham, and a number of Harold John Ockengay in, in New England. These were the men who held the line and fought the battle until enough younger men could come in behind them and man the, man the barricade. So it's a very fascinating history of our country, and you never hear it uh, unless you happen to take a course in American church history. But that's pertains to this appendix tonight because it was during the 20s and 30s where accommodation became the mainstream. What we have presented to you in this course so far, this strict interpretation of Genesis, is a new thing in the sense that it was resurrected in the 60s. And it was not held by many, many of the evangelicals uh, all the way back. In fact, it's interesting even in the monkey trial, the Scopes trial in Tennessee, uh, Williams Jennings Bryan did not hold to a totally literal interpretation of Genesis. Very fascinating side note from history. And one of the reasons he lost to Clarence Darrow, it is felt, was that he was fundamentally inconsistent. Bryan was trying to oppose evolution, but he was also had compromised himself in the area of not having a holistic view of Genesis 1 to 11. He was trying to get ages in and all kinds of things in there. He wasn't consistent. And Clarence Darrow was a very consistent and logical attorney and he just chopped Brian's pieces and made him look like an idiot along with everybody else that was a creationist at the time. So it's important that we look at why since 1960s, the early 60s, why has there been a resurgence of strict creationism in our camp. It is still a controversy inside our Christian camp. And, and that's why I warn you that you can't assume that just because someone trusted the Lord Jesus Christ that they're going to agree with you in the area of Genesis 1-11. to It's not going to happen. Because the church for over a hundred years has been in a... Either they wanted to not do this, this was the modernists, what they tried to do was try an accommodationist strategy. And in to accommodate, they would try to squeeze time into the text and they would try to smear out any differences between what the text appeared to say and what evolution was saying, trying to reduce tension, that's all. And many of them had good intentions in doing this. However, by the mid of the 20th century, it became clear that the accommodation strategy was just was, was unraveling because at every point that a compromise was made, it resulted in another compromise. We call this logically the slippery slope argument. And this men who were in their 50s back in 1960s, were the guys that really began to articulate it. They began to get very, very concerned about the way things were going. And they said, no, no, there's something wrong in our whole approach. And it was during those years that they redrafted things. And out of that came what we now know as strict creationism. So that we call that a counterattack strategy. 
and I, call, I deliberately call it a counterattack strategy. That's just my vocabulary. But I call it the counterattack strategy to draw attention to the fact that these people are countering. They're not, the, the image here is often that, oh, gee, these people must be so terribly uneducated. Um, I mean, surely they have sophisticated, I mean, they, they, they've gone to science schools, they've gotten their degrees in math and science and engineering. I mean, what is wrong with them? Why do they insist on, on this strict stuff? When they know darn well it creates such tension and they're taking on the whole world by doing this. Why do they, up, why do they insist on doing this? I mean, don't they realize that there were other people in the church who took an allegorical interpretation? That kind of story. And why I've, I've said that this is a counterattack strategy is because these people are very informed. It is precisely because they do know the Genesis text it is precisely because they are trained in the sciences that they did what they did. The problem was, and most of these men who did this, as I said, were not people who lived on Christian campuses. They were men who worked out in the everyday world of science and engineering who had to deal with this thing. I mean, it would be like you working as an accountant or a businessman, and every day you're dealing with finances and so on, and there's been, you follow an agenda that's getting you in economic trouble. And you begin to sense there's something wrong here. And so you say, wait a minute, hold it. There's something wrong in my basic premise that's getting me in trouble. And so it was a re-examination of that. That's more like what's happened here. So, yes, I am fully aware that what I have taught here in the class, you know, week after week, month after month, is in, in massive collision with the world system. But it's deliberate that way. That's right. Because that's the way it is. So the half of the tension, obviously, is are we right in seeing Genesis should be literally interpreted? And that's the question that we're dealing with tonight. So the first section on page 103 and following is a section that deals with hermeneutics. And hermeneutics deals with the rules of interpreting literature which cause us to get back to the issue of language. And to do that, we want to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and just look at the text to refresh our memory a moment. So if you turn to Genesis 1, And hold your place there and turn to John chapter 1. And we're going to flip-flop between the two for a little bit here. Between Genesis 1 and John 1. Because we want to observe something that we observed before, but we want to review it. Because the heart of the problem of interpreting literature is of one's view of language. Now, it's quite obvious if you look at Genesis 1 that the verb of creating is a verb of speaking. Notice verse 3. The first thing that is recorded to have been created after the earth is light. And the light is a result of God speaking. God said, let there be light. And if you have modern translations, it's in quotes. Let there be light. A sentence with nouns, verbs in it that have meaning was spoken. And then in verse 5, after the act, and you notice there's no other verb of to create in verse 3. It just says there was light and, there, and, and it happened. There's not some intermediate verb that says God said, gee, I want to make light, and then he set out to, to maybe uh, compress atoms or something, and, and that would be a verb, and then he said, oh, now I have light. All that's dropped out. And the only verb we see in the text is a speaking, a verb to speak. So what immediately comes out of this is that all of reality, energy, mass, 
atomic structures, whatever you want to talk about is a result of language. But it's not the language of man, it's the language of God. So language takes on a very highly elevated position in scripture. Language, God's language, is above all. Now, we fundamentalists, we like to turn God's word, God's word. And I'm not using the word God's word. I'm using the word God's language just simply as a device today to make us think a little bit clearer. Because if I keep using the word God's word, God's word, we all think we know what God's word means, so therefore we don't listen, so therefore we don't catch it. So I, re I won't use the word God's word so much. I use the word God's language. So God speaks, and there's a linguistic structure to all of nature. We'll get into that more in Appendix B. But the idea then is that language is superior, and that means that language shapes everything else. Now, why do we make a point about that? Because here's the deal. Those who would argue we can't be literal in our Genesis interpretation argue like this. They say all language is conditioned. Language is approximate. You always speak out of your own worldview. You always uh, have expressions and idioms and language. I have a language that's figurative anyway. So language accommodates itself to something that's not quite really ready for language. Well, that's true of human language. But everything that exists has come into being through the hyper-language or the meta-language, which is God's word, God's speaking. So that means that we, if we start right here in the scripture, verse 3, the first, the third verse of the Bible, gives us a doctrine of language. And that is a doctrine that collides absolutely, emphatically, and completely with a view of language as articulated by 20th century philosophers and everyone else is driving this wagon of uh, what we spoke earlier about deconstruction and in schools today, you know, Cindy got up here and she was telling about sharing with us one evening about the problems of the English teacher and how that the theme, the big thing today in interpreting literature in English classes or literature classes is that the language is basically a tool of deception, it's a bias, and to understand a document you have to tear it up and say, well, gee, uh, Shakespeare didn't really mean this. He, the whole Shakespearean drama set of literature is a propaganda device. Uh, of whether Shakespeare intended it or not, nevertheless, it came out that way. So King Lear and all the rest of it are—it's just propaganda. It's, it's propaganda of Shakespeare's narrow worldview, and so the feminists will climb all over it and say, "See, it's all loaded with masculine dominance. It's all loaded against the woman, and so this is all just propaganda." So what they do is they keep yakking like this week after week in a classroom. What you finally wind up with is, gee, uh, is language capable of communicating anything? And you come out with a very low, low, low view of language. Well, see, if you, d if you diminish one, your view of language, what else happens? You can't think without language. So if you can destroy language, you destroy thinking. And if you destroy thinking, the next step is that you're left with emotions. And so this is why, you know, everybody wants to emote and make these mindless statements and, and responses, just this emotional response to something. No thought given. Because if you can't have language and language isn't available as a tool, then I can't think because I don't have any tools to think with. So the battle of our own time has largely to do with this thing. And if you have a low view of language, you're going to interpret Genesis in a very figurative way in a very simplistic way. It's going to come across to you as, oh, well, this is just a, it's, it's all metaphor. It's just, it's just men, the ancient Jewish people, uh, trying to express themselves and their ideas. But you 
See, here's where you get in trouble. If you're, if you're going to be a Christian, you, you, you have to be a fundamentalist and, and get to the truth. Because if you don't go far enough in your faith to see that God literally speaks in verse 3, that God literally speaks that sentence, then you have no support for your whole theory of language. Our whole idea of Genesis is that it's to be interpreted literally because language is a bona fide tool with which we understand the world. If you write me a letter, do you intend me to have trouble interpreting it and that I have to sit and read your letter 45 times and get 53 interpretations out of it? Now, it may come across that way, but you certainly don't intend that. You intend to communicate an idea to me when you write a letter. Well, I mean, can't we accord the same opinion about God? What God wants to speak to us, does he really intend that we have this tremendous problem understanding what it is he's trying to say? It thwarts the whole idea of language. So, from a biblical viewpoint, there shouldn't be an interpretation problem to start with in Genesis. This is history. The only reason people are having problems with it is that it doesn't line up very well. You remember back in the uh, fall when we started, I showed this overhead. And I, I showed that overhead because it clearly shows we've got a problem here. That on the right-hand side, the Genesis text is giving us a narration of events that conflict in very, very fundamental ways with the left side of the diagram, which is all what we're taught in evolution in the school system. And doesn't require a genius to see we've got a little problem here. We've got a big problem here. We've got major conflicts going on from one end of that list to the other. So what do you do about that? Well, that's where the game of, of uh, footsie comes in here. And that's how accommodationism started. Well, can't we get rid of some of this? I mean, this is an embarrassment. Here we are, modern people, and we're going around with this ancient document that conflicts so much with what the world says. So, surely, we want to, of course, get to the gospel. And so, in order to get to the gospel, we'll try to get rid of this embarrassment. The problem is, if you dilute this, you never do get to the gospel. Because now the Christ that you're talking about isn't the Christ of Scripture. It's another Christ. As one guy said, Jesus Christ is a chameleon. He takes on the color of the environment. It becomes a contentless slogan. Unless we're talking about the Christ of Scripture. That's the only Christ that there is. There's no other Christ. There's reconstructions of men re try to reconstruct Jesus. And they're the liberal Jesus and the modernist Jesus and the ecumenical Jesuses. There's lots of Jesus. But the real Jesus is defined only in Scripture. So we have to go through this embarrassment, this Genesis text that conflicts completely with our world. It's part of the load we carry as Christians. And we shouldn't look upon it as a load or as an embarrassment it's defining answers for which the pagan has none. And that's what we've tried to say as we've gone through creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. We've said it point after point after point after point, whether it's in psychology, whether it's in the area of language, whether it's in the area of knowing, whether it's in the area of morals, whether it's in the area of dealing with evil. It's not that there are other answers out there. They don't have any answers. Basically, unbelief, you know what the, the word in the Greek and the Hebrew for unbelief, it, it's translated by this anemic little word in our English language called vanity. But what it really means is just hot air. Unbelief is just a lot of hot air. And what we have to do is we have to show people hot air. That's what it all is. It doesn't have a basis. And it's hard to do that. It's not just that you can just call it hot air, hot air got to show that it's hot air. And that's what we tried as we've gone through here. It's not that there are many answers in the world. There are very few answers. And the Bible gives the only answers in the final analysis. All right, so 
hermeneutics and presuppositions. What do we mean by this? We mean that how you interpret literature is controlled by your doctrine of language. And in turn, your doctrine of language derives from your presuppositions about whether or not God's word is God's word. That's your starting point. You start off denying that, you're going to come out with one view of language. If you start affirming that, you're going to come out with another view of language. And that's because everything hinges on the fact that in Scripture, we go back to this two-level idea. We have the create, Creator and the Creature. We have language with a capital L up here, and we have language down here with a little l. This language isn't the same as this. It corresponds with it. But this is the language of omniscience. This is language that is perfectly and logically consistent in every detail. It is a language that commands a total and perfect knowledge. Whereas we are finite creatures and we have pieces and we understand a little bit here and a little bit there and it looks conflicting and foggy to us. Well, now I ask you to hold the place in John 1 because in John 1, if we flip over to John 1, after we've thought a little bit about Genesis 1, think what John has done for us in the, his gospel. What John has done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he has digested and extended the meaning of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God speaks, and he says, let there be light, and there was light. God says there's this, and there was that. God says that, and there was something else. What John does, he says, now isn't this interesting, he says. In the beginning, now, there's a phrase, direct, copied from Genesis 1.1. Now let's line those two statements up. Genesis says, in the beginning, God created. And we know that he created by means of language. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. Now John comes along in the New Testament and he says, in the beginning, there was the Word. And the Word was God. What do you think impressed the Apostle John about the Genesis text? Precisely what's bothering 20th century people. The whole issue of language. Look at the word that he uses for the second person of the Trinity. Logos. It's the word that means thought. It's the word that means expression of thought. It means the thought and the word of the thought that, are, that expresses it. So what John is amazed at and under the Holy Spirit, he writes this in his gospel. In the beginning, there was language. And language was with God, and language was God. That's the high order with which he held language. Now, just think of the implications. Just take, take 60 seconds and just think of this. Of the implications this has for training people to read. Think of the implications. Do you know why literacy was promoted in Western civilization? To read the Bible. To converse with God and understand what he had said. Think of this for a moment. Who was it that defined the modern German language? Luther. How did you do that? By translating the Bible. Luther set up modern German. Who was it that basically structured the English language? This is the King James Version of the Bible. Why was there great demands in the 18th and 19th centuries to teach children to read? So that they could read computer manuals? Funny books? Encyclopedias? No. None of those were around. Well, why did people learn to read? Basic question there were only about three or four books in the average American home. One was Blackstone's Commentaries on the Law, which amazingly was a bestseller in New England, colonial America. The Bible and the Almanac. 
That was basically most people's work. And it was the people who could afford it had books, the classic books, of course. But that was it. And people learned to read because they wanted to learn what was on God's mind about themselves. That's the high order, the great motivation behind literacy. Now if we come to our day, when systematically we have by law excluded theistic claims from the classroom, and we got a problem with what? Literacy. Oh, kids can read in the sense they understand the letters, but they can't put them together into coherent thought. Well, why is that? No motivation. Why should I bother to learn how to read and go through all the disciplines of learning language and expressing myself in language when there's nothing really there that you've shown me that's worth talking about? I can, I can understand football without reading. I can have a good time. I don't have to learn, learn to read to have a good time. Well, then I don't even have to learn to read to do a lot of manual labor. So what's the motivation? Well, we can't talk about that. It's a violation of separation of church and state. So by snapping the umbilical cord underneath the theistic justification of language, we've destroyed the motive to learn language. Very simple. So we want to understand when we come to Genesis 1 to 11, it's built on this very high order. And John, when John writes of this, he is so excited about the fact that there's thought there's reason. Somebody is talking out there that he calls the second personality of the Trinity the Word. The very one noun he can find in the Greek language to describe that which is most significant about that second person of the Trinity. He expresses the nature of God himself. He has a message and can be read. Okay, enough said about language and, and Genesis. Now let's go on page 104 to the traditional interpretation. We've mentioned from time to time as we've gone through this that if you want to learn about the Old Testament, often you can get interpretations by watching what the New Testament does with the Old Testament. And I've listed many, many different um, phrases there, different places where it's, it's concerned. But I want to take you to Matthew 19. We went there the very first night we met because Matthew 19 is a classic instance of Jesus apparently not knowing what every college freshman knows who is taking a course in biblical criticism. Matthew 19. Jesus, to the modern man, makes a terrible mistake here. In verse 4, 5, and 6, he is dealing with a very practical question. Notice, very practical question. Divorce. And he answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, if you have a marginal reference, somewhere in marginal apparatus, uh, there should be a reference to where that is taken from. And I think you'll find the reference to Genesis 1. Now you look in the next verse, verse 5, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I think if you look at your apparatus there, it will be pointing to Genesis 2. Now what does every freshman learn in the course on the Bible in our skeptical classrooms? That there are two accounts of creation. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And they're both in conflict. Now, isn't this interesting that Jesus either is unaware of the conflict or, as the author of both Genesis 1 and 2 knew very well, there was no conflict. In which case, then, the joke's on the people who think there's a conflict. And it must say something about the fact that the way they perceive the story is somewhat flawed. So flawed that they really honestly have convinced themselves that there's a conflict there. 
they're unable to read it's the problem and in all seriousness they are unable to read the text here we have the author of the text interpreting the text for us and we have teacher after teacher after teacher and article writer and textbook writer after textbook writer telling us all no 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 Jesus is wrong Jesus shares that first century Judaism say he was a man of his time he was trapped in his own age trapped in his own culture he couldn't transcend his own culture didn't really have the added benefits that we have today and didn't really know what he was talking about so this is an example of why we say that the literal straightforward interpretation of Genesis that we have promoted is the same one that you find in the New Testament. Since we're in Matthew, turn to Matthew 23. And let's see another little casual reference to Genesis. Again, it doesn't require a genius to see that the New Testament authors have no sense whatsoever that the narrative of Genesis is somehow symbolical. Matthew 23, 35. Who is the speaker here? Anybody know who Jesus is? Ah, same guy that made the mistake in chapter 19 makes another one. Look at this. Verse 35 that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the, the, the temple and the altar. Now just imagine that. Jesus believed in a literal Abel. He actually believed those stories in Genesis 1. And he also points out that there was no blood shed before the murder story in Genesis chapter 4. That's interesting. Well, what do you do about this? If you're going to capitulate, what you're going to say is, yeah, Jesus believed in literal Genesis. He was just wrong. Just wrong, that's all. Can't right, wipe it off. But now if you're an accommodationist, what are you going to do? Now the little, now we get the problem here. See, here's where you go one way or the other. It's sort of like you have your foot on the boat and another one on the dock, and the boat's going away from the dock. Kind of leaves you in a kind of position. And that's what's happened here with the accommodations, because now, whatever they do to soften the conflict, since Jesus believes in the literal interpretation, now they've got to soften him. So to accommodate the Genesis text over here, requires us to accommodate Jesus over here. And that's precisely why we have the counterattack strategy. It's precisely because these gimmicks don't work in the real world. You can't give up over here without causing problems over here. The Bible is like a set of dominoes. You knock one over, and it goes all the way around the room. And here's why. These are verses that are in, it's embedded. Let's look at Matthew 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus still speaking. What does he talk about? The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Not some away, all away. So clearly Jesus knows the details of that Genesis story. Why does Jesus so stubbornly adhere to these details? Not only does the New Testament adhere to the literalness of Genesis, and this is another very interesting point. Uh, Warren Miller taught a class in Jude a while back, and he pointed this out. And it's, it's something that's woven through the New Testament. If this line represents information stored in Genesis 1 to 11, then the New Testament not only affirms this information, the New Testament offers additional information that is even more literal than the Genesis text. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3. 
This is an example of where the New Testament almost tells us how Cain slew his brother. John, um, let's see. Where am I talking to? 1 John 3, verse 12. Yes. Just a little verb stuck in here. But the verb may very well be asserting details about the first murder that are not recorded in Genesis. In verse 12 it says, We should not be as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The word slew. If you look it up in the Greek, the context of that verb is cut with a knife. And this adds insight into perhaps how Cain got the idea how to kill his brother. Think about it. No, no TV. Couldn't learn about violence. Didn't have any murder stories. Where did Cain get the idea how to kill his brother? Well, what were knives used for prior to the murder? To kill lambs for sacrifice. So it's very easy to think about how Cain watched how his father, Adam, sliced the throat of a lamb and it bled to death and that was the sacrifice. Ha! Huh, gee, I wonder what would happen if I did that to their brother. So, it's these little details. If you really want to see a, a detail, turn over to the book of Jude. With this, over in this part of the New Testament. In Jude, verse 14. If Jude is Jesus' half-brother, and it seems likely he was, this comes out of a family of boys raised by the same parents, taught, discussed the Bible apparently in their home, part of that Jewish culture, and would reflect, therefore, the understanding of the Genesis text that was concurrent with Jesus' own family. And look at verse 14 and 15. And about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment over all, so on and so forth. Now, the sermon of Enoch in verse 14 and 15 is nowhere to be found in the Genesis narrative. Where did he come from then? Nobody knows. Whether it's the Holy Spirit that added this revelation and gave special memory to the apostles, or whether, in fact, segments of this knowledge have been preserved in Jewish tradition, because Jewish is very, Judaism is very rich in tradition. There are these little pieces of knowledge that the New Testament fills in, little segments. What's so striking about these little segments is that they all fit a literal interpretation. Observe in this text, for example, in verse 14, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now, one of the accommodationist tactics to try to get more time in Genesis to accommodate is to stretch the genealogies. How do you stretch a genealogy? By making one name the grandfather of the next name, or the great-grandfather, and you spread it apart. But, excuse me, Jude says Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam. He, he doesn't allow us the rubber band problem. See? And that's what I mean when you start seriously looking at how the New Testament is treating the Old Testament, it won't permit you to get fast and loose with it. It pins you down even more. So the traditional interpretation, and by tradition we mean the tradition of the Jews, the tradition of the apostles and the early church, this traditional interpretation has been with us for centuries. And the irony is, on the part of the accommodationists, is that nobody really seriously knew how to interpret Genesis until 1900. Now, doesn't something strike you as kind of odd about that? The Holy Spirit wrote the text. The Holy Spirit taught the church. The Holy Spirit indwelled every believer since Pentecost. And we have to wait until 1940? before we understand what really is going on in Genesis 1? We're going to wait until the year 3010 to find out what really went on in 1 Kings? There's something wrong here. Something doesn't fit. 
So that's what we, why that's the argument for the traditional interpretation being the correct one. It's not saying that tradition is always right, but it's saying on such fundamental issues that the church has been screwed up for 19 and a half centuries and can't get it straight in Genesis 1. What on earth are we doing with the rest of the Bible? There's something intuitively wrong with this kind of thought. Okay. Let's go now to the interrelated structure of Genesis. I want to uh, show that, and I think most of you have a sense of this already from the way we've structured the, the course. Genesis is built with a certain logical coherence. You'll see, I guess I'm running out of blue. Genesis 1 and 2 very clearly mark off the creation section of the text. Clearly, 3 and 4 and 5 deal with the results of the fall. The fall and its results. They depict the rise of civilization, the contamination, the, the vaunted uh, praise of Lamech, the revenge and all the rest of it that's going on. 6, 7, and 8 are clearly dealing with the flood, and 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with the post-flood situation. Now, observe what happens here. What do we learn about creation? We learn that there are certain specific kinds. There are certain categories that are set up here. God, crea the creator-creature distinction, the man-nature distinction. Those are distinctions that were set up and established at that point. They're inviolable. They never are transgressed. We learned here that the introduction of evil, the origin of evil, creates the curse of death. So remember we said evil has a point in time where it begins and goes on until God deals with it in the future. That marks us off from being pagans. Pagans don't have an origin of evil. Evil always was. Here we have a salvation and we have the concept of judgment for sin. And here we have the new heavens and the new earth. So we have in this microcosm of the first 11 chapters of Genesis the entire rest of the Bible really depicted. You think about it. It's the whole story. Origins, sin, salvation, and resolution. Now, if you tamper with pieces of this, you rapidly create a, an unraveling sweater situation. Think, for example, of what happens if you go into the first two chapters and you begin to expand the days into ages. Why would you do that? Well, because what you're trying to do is accommodate the text to what appears to be a very old universe. And the old parts of the universe have fossils in them and so on. And if that's the case, now what you have done is, here come the dominoes. Watch the dominoes, folks. We do this little compromise here, and we wind up having to modify what we mean by this over here. Now, it's really not death that starts in chapter 3, 4, and 5. It's only the death of man that starts in 3, 4, and 5. Whereas death always preceded in this case because days are ages. And so in all those millions of years, we had fossils going on, etc., etc., etc. So we had death happening. So we had natural evil. And so the fall now becomes smaller, does it not? Don't, we, don't you feel that what's happening here is that this word, death, is now contracting down? Now it's not death of animals. Got plenty of death of animals here going on before this, if the days are ages. And then, now what we've done is we've compromised this word also. Because now it's not, hum, it's not natural evil and human evil that started the fall. It's only human evil that started the fall, not natural so storms, chaos, and things in nature that are bad must not be bad because they were preceded the fall. 
Well, if that's the case, then that also carries over further on down in the textual structure. Because now that we've compromised that, and we've compromised that because we've made this little accommodation, now what happens over here in the area of salvation? Well, because this flood, whatever it is, can't be found in the strata anymore, because now we've explained all the rock strata over here. This is where the strata was laid down, because that's millions and millions of years old. Now what we have done is we have to adjust the flood. So this salvation and judgment here, now that gets contracted down, because that becomes a minor Tigris-Euphrates River Valley overflow situation. It's got to be, because there's no evidence of a global flood. That was all pushed back when we, when we made the days into ages. And if that's the case, and the flood was only local, and God said he'd never bring another one, what does that do to the new heavens and the new earth? It trivializes the whole covenant now. Well, I hope through this little exercise, you see, this is one of many dramas that we could show you, but you start fiddling around here with how you interpret one part of the text and you're going to get yourself in hot water. And this is the lesson that has been learned for the past 200 years. Every time accommodationism has been tried, it winds up doing this. And that is why a group of men finally said in the 1960s and 50s, this has gone far enough. We are not going to do this anymore. We are going to, as Christians, approach the text. And if the text conflicts, then the text conflicts. But we are not going to use a rubber Bible and stretch it everywhere we want to stretch it. So, we come then to some of the final points. Uh, I've just listed for you the favorite locations. I've just illustrated one of the several for you. I just illustrated the first one, days on page 105, the days of creation. But there are others. For example, on page 106, I list the Abraham to uh, the Adam to Abraham genealogies. That's a favorite location for getting more time. And the problem is the formula. When you have a formula, as I point out there, that X lived N years and begat Y, and the days after he begat Y were N years, and all the days that X lived were N plus N years, it tends to give you the impression, whoever wrote it, meant that the days be taken literally and the years be taken literally because he's adding them. He's, he's locking it all up in a formula here. So you can't play fast and loose through this stuff. And it's better, really. I think it's far more integrity if you, if you have a problem with this than just throwing the whole Bible out. A lot more integrity than saying it's wrong, just like the, the you know, capitulation is saying, forget it, just forget it. I mean, I can read and it doesn't fit, so forget it. But don't, don't be a plastic person and start, you know, using rubber to... <clears throat> got to stretch the text to fit every little problem I've got. Well, I conclude on page 106 and 107 with a pre-Genesis 1 existence. And we only have one or two minutes left here, but I do want to approach this before we get onto the next appendix. This seems to be coming back for some ungodly reason in our own day because some evangelicals and Christian schools are now teaching that Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 and 1.3 are to be interpreted such that verse 3 becomes the first act of creation so that the heavens and the earth that are here are speaking of what's happening beyond verse 3 and the earth therefore that appears in verse 2 was pre-existing the earth was without form and void meaning that when God began to create the earth was without form and void at that time that he began to create well now excuse me but haven't we lost something here if that's really the case now, is God creator of all things? 
He may be, but you don't get it out of the Genesis text any longer, do you? Because now this word, watch what has happened. Now, this word is not contained in the actions of creating. This is something that pre-existed. So on a timeline, you have the earth existing here, and then God begins to create. His creating work starts at point B. But all the points previous to B have this mysterious earth that came from where? Beats me. So now what we've given up is something really immense, really serious here. Now we've lost God as the creator of all things. And what's so ironic about this is, this is exactly what we've started the whole course with many weeks ago when I had you read the Enuma Elish epic. And how did the Enuma Elish epic as a pagan story of origin start? With watery chaos. And what came out of the watery chaos? The gods and goddesses and all else. The source of the universe was chaos. Just as in the modern version, the source of the universe is chaotic gas. So in the ancient paganism, the source of the universe was chaotic water. But when evangelicals of all people begin to ooch through their way through these first three verses and begin to interpret it such that the earth is pre-existing prior to the work of creation, we once again set off a set of dominoes and give it 20 more years and the people who have been translating the text this way are going to say, uh-oh, guess what we let loose? That's right. Why didn't you think of that before? And of course, we can go to John chapter 1, which we did tonight. Do you notice John saying anything about that in the beginning was the earth along with the word? No. Let's conclude with that text because John cuts off that even as an, as an interpretive possibility by something else he says further on down in this text. We turn to John 1 again. John hastens to add in verse 3, And I really wish that some of the Jehovah's Witnesses would just forget their six-week course in Greek and read verse 3 along with verse 1. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has, that has come into being. Wouldn't you say that that's pretty comprehensive? You see, verse 3 locks it up. Verse 3 prevents you from ever misinterpreting John the Apostle. And since John the Apostle begins in verse 1 with a very quoting the very words of Genesis 1-1, surely we have here his understanding of Genesis 1. Okay. So tonight what we have done is we have reviewed, we could spend, I mean, this in, in language courses, you could spend whole semester on, on some of these details. I can't. I only have four or five pages in the appendix to do it, but I've tried to give you the overall argument, the overall strategy. You will run into permutations and combinations of what we said tonight. You may have 20 or 30 versions of what we said tonight, but the thing to remember is you can't keep all this in your head. You can't remember all these details. The best thing to do is just think of the basic issue. Just the basic issue. And the basic issue is you deny the word of God over here and you're going to deny it everywhere else finally. Let it go one way and it will always take you the other way. So that's why we Christian fundamentalists insist on the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. Not because... We're defending a new idea. We are defending the location of the inerrancy. Always remember that. As a Christian, don't be embarrassed when you say, oh, you believe the Bible's without error? Yes. Do you believe that you're without error? I am debating the location, but everybody holds to inerrancy. Every man holds to inerrancy somewhere. That's his authority. 
So either man is inerrant or the scripture is inerrant. But it's not the case that we Christians are the only people that believe in inerrancy. We simply locate very clearly for all the world to see where our inerrancy is. The, the foot dancers and the ice skaters are trying to cover up the fact that ultimately they too have an inerrancy which they locate in their own heart. Their heart of hearts is inerrant. It's an inerrant discerner of what's true and what's wrong, what's false. All right, we will then next week deal, if you will read that uh, appendix, we're going to deal with the basic argument. Once again, not all the details, can't deal with details in four or five pages, but I want to review the logic and the structure of the issue in biology, the issue of evolution and creation. Father, we thank you that you are our creator. We thank you that you have created all things that have come into existence and there has not come to existence anything good or evil that has been uh, that has come in autonomously that has organized itself into existence but all has come through your creative power for you have created all things all things are of you through you and to you and we give you praise for this work in Christ's name